Go ahead and grab your Bibles as you are finding your seat. You can turn to the book of Ruth. After what Scott just said up there during our liturgy, I should just really pray and excuse us all right now because that was on point right there. That was on point. Um, so I really appreciate his words to us and his leading of us through our songs every week. Man, he does an amazing job. Ruth chapter 2. And as you're getting there, you know, I was thinking about it. It's always funny uh, to me when I'm driving uh, down a stretch of road and I pass someone I feel is going too slow. And then a minute later, I get passed from someone who thinks I'm going too slow. But then one minute later, we all end up stopped at the same traffic light together, right? Everybody's done that. Number one, I feel ashamed usually for how impatient I was with the guy who is now sitting right behind me. And two, I always hope I smiled at him when I made the pass and that he's not big, all right? Or she's not big, right? Whatever. Um, so my, my point, though, is that regardless of how fast or slow we were all driving, in the end, it was the traffic light that determined our progress and made our speed of arrival irrelevant. Um, and so in the same way, all of you, um, and this is what we're going to be speaking about this morning, all of you are in different seasons, you're in different walks, you're in different speeds, so to speak, of your faith. Um, and some of you are, 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 man, you're young in your faith. It's just been maybe just a few months or maybe even a few years since you came to a saving faith in Christ. Some of you are mature in your faith. You've been walking with God for years, and while some of you may be on just one of the other ends of that spectrum where you're feeling incredibly weak in your faith even right now. And so the question that I hope that we answer by the end of our time is this. Are we able to find God's favor or His grace? Another word for favor is grace. Are we able to find God's favor in whatever season of faith that we find ourselves in? Let me rephrase that. Is God's faithfulness to you based on the amount of faith you have? Does his providence, his provision, and his pleasure get doled out to you on a performance-only basis? That's the question that we want to ask this morning. And again, if that, if that just seems like a sort of this rhetorical Sunday school, you know, kind of no-duh kind of question that I, that I threw out there, let me just challenge us by asking if your life actually reflects your no-duh, all right? And of course, before we address any of these questions, we're assuming that there is a faith in God to begin with. So to be in a season of faith sort of like precludes that you actually have a faith. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 16 tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the writer of Hebrews is making the case that you can't draw near to God if you don't first believe that he exists. And if you don't believe he exists, you're not going to seek him, right? It's just, it's kind of common logic there. So without faith in God, there's no reward or favor or grace to receive from God. Now, what this passage in Hebrews just, that I just read doesn't mention is the amount of faith that is required to please God and whether his favor or grace to us depends on that amount. So as we look into the lives of Ruth and Naomi and a new character that's going to be introduced by the name of Boaz, we're going to see three people 
in different seasons of faith. We're going to see a young faith. We're going to see a mature faith. And we're also going to see a weak faith and then see whether they were able to each find God's favor in the seasons of faith that they were walking in. And so that's my setup to what we're going to be doing this morning. But before that, let's bow our heads. Let's pray right now. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to be faithful to us by opening our minds, by illuminating them, by opening up our hearts, by softening them to receive uh, these words of truth, that they would change us, that they would sanctify us, that they would open us up to a deeper desire and affection for God and for His Son, Jesus. Lord, do that work in us now as we seek to live out our faith by reading, by accepting, by receiving the words that you have given to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you are just joining us, if you're new, we are in week three of our seven-week series through the Old Testament book of Ruth. Now, the story of Ruth, it begins in the times of the judges. This was a particular time in the history of Israel before they had a king when God would raise up men and women to judge the nation, to protect them from other uh, warring nations that were seeking to oppress them and, 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 and uh, establish themselves and, and have some sort of legal control and oversight over the nation of Israel. But it was also a very dark time in the history of the nation. And so Ruth begins in the times of the judges by introducing us to a woman we've seen the last two weeks named Naomi, who moves from her hometown of Bethlehem to the land of Moab with her husband and two sons because there was a famine in the land, in her homeland. Now two traumatic events unfold while uh, Naomi was in Moab. Number one, her husband Elimelech dies. Secondly, her two sons, Malan and Chilion, get married to Moabite women. But then they die, and we're not really told why Elimelech or uh, the sons of Naomi and Elimelech die, but they die. And what happens is this leaves Naomi destitute now with her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. So two glimpses of God's grace unfold during this tragedy to Naomi. Number one, God ends the famine in Bethlehem in her homeland. And two, Ruth comes to faith. Her daughter-in-law Ruth comes to faith in God and commits herself to Naomi for life. The rub in all of this is that Naomi has now grown bitter in her grief. She's suffered just immeasurable loss. Remember, we discussed that last week, and now she was just sort of being influenced and being torn at the seams by the ravages of her grief. So we pick up the story today with Naomi and Ruth settling in Bethlehem and looking for work. And that's where we pick up today in chapter 2. And you can follow along with me as I read the first 16 verses. It says this, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Verse 5, And Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? 
And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women and let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Verse 14, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out from some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. This is God's word for us today. So up to this point, you may have thought over the last two weeks that this was the book of Naomi uh, with some Ruth sprinkled in because our focus really has been primarily on the story of Naomi. But a third main character gets introduced to us here named Boaz, who happens to be a relative of Naomi's former husband, Elimelech, and not just a relative, but a dude who had some clout and respect in the community. So when they use the word worthy man, when they refer to him as that, that's what that meant, is that he was an important person within the community. So we get this introduction right at the beginning of chapter 2 to Boaz, along with a reminder of the fact that Ruth is a Moabite woman which means she has immigrant status in Bethlehem. And the author wants us to understand this as he continues to unfold the story for us. So chapter 2 opens for us with this really stark contrast, actually, between Boaz, again, this, we, this important, this well-respected man about town, and Ruth, this poverty-stricken, widowed immigrant looking for work to feed her family. Ruth's hope in verses 2 through 3, if you look down, was just to be able to go to the field and find favor with a field owner who would then allow her to pick the grain that fell to the ground as the reapers harvested the crop. And so what we're going to see here is that three things unfold for Ruth as somebody who is very young in her faith as she begins working in the field. She experiences three things. She experiences God's providence, God's provision, and she experiences God's pleasure. And the first thing she experiences as she comes into the field is God's 
providence. When you look down at verses 3 or 7, one of these particular phrases that kind of jumps out is that it says she happened to come into the field of Boaz. So because many of us have been subjected to and influenced by really a superstitious kind of power of positive thinking, kind of anti-gospel, which whether you like it or not, some of you have been subjected to that. We need to be reminded here, and we are reminded here, that there is no happened to in the life of God's people, right? Ruth just didn't just happen to come into the field belonging to Boaz. You did not just happen to come to the place that you have come to. You just didn't happen to come to this church or happen to get placed in the job or with the people or with the family you've been placed with. You're going you're gonna to really kind of be able to live that out too in about four days, the family you've happened to have been placed with, okay? God divinely ordains our events and our outcomes. That's what's called the providence of God. He's in control over the things that happen and the outcomes that come as a result. There is no dumb luck, okay? Except for believing in luck, which is dumb, okay? Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9 tells us this. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So what we see here, right even in the beginning with Ruth here, is that Ruth's steps were ordained and established by God. So God's providence here in Ruth's life comes in the form of a person. It comes in the form of Boaz, who happens to be a godly man. It says there in verse 4 when he greets his men and he says, The Lord be with you. This indicates that this was a man of faith. And what this tells us as we think about God's care and God's providence in our lives is that he surrounds his people with his people. So like when you look around you right now and you find yourself just happening to step into the warehouse this morning, God just happened to surround you with other people that are like you uh, in your faith. And Ruth needed a field, didn't she? Ruth needed a field to gather grain. But what's interesting for us is that God had more than grain in mind for Ruth, didn't he? I mean, we think we know everything that we need but unbeknownst to us is always a God who knows our needs better than we know them. Who knows what we need above and beyond what we think or understand that we actually need. So God brought Ruth to work in a field owned by a godly man. And then we see Ruth responding to God's providence in verse 7 with humility and hard work. Interesting how Ruth, even so young in her faith, responds to God's providence in her life. Well, what do we learn from this? Well, number one, that, that God ordains our events and our outcomes. We just talked about that. And number two, that he calls us to work out our faith while he works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, which you read in Romans 8, 28. This is what this means. Godly faith is a faith that goes, right? Naomi told Ruth, when Ruth said, hey, can I go to the field? Naomi says, go, Ruth, go. And Ruth went to the field. So what we see here in Ruth is that her faith was evidenced by her works. Let's turn to the book of James all the way in the New Testament because I want to unpack this just a little bit farther before we, before we move on. James chapter 2, it's all the way near the end. 
James chapter 2. Talking about faith in works. James chapter 2, verse 18. I'm going to start reading while you're still getting there. And this is what James says. This is his argument. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And then he finishes by saying this in verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You can turn back to Ruth. So there's kind of a little bit of a a wait a minute here when we read something like this, given the language that we regularly use here in substance. Um, And it's that, um, Martin, last time I checked, don't you have this rather large uh, framed poster over the coffee station in the lobby that says we are justified by faith alone? And didn't James just kind of speak against that? Well, yes and yes, kind of. But what helps us is a quote from Martin Luther that says this, We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone, okay? So there's two sides to this equation, that we are saved by faith in Christ alone, but that faith is evidenced by the works that we do that is like a springboard from our faith. Now, here's an example of that. Every morning I wake up and I walk out of my bedroom, down the hallway, and I flip on every light switch in the kitchen and living room because I'm that guy. And my wife is like super pumped about that too, by the way. Um, Now look, I believe in electricity, right? I'm a believer. I believe in electricity. I believe I can't create electricity, but those lights will only come on if I use my finger to flip the switch. You guys following me with that? So as we're talking about Ruth, God led Ruth to a field, but Ruth had to work the field, right? This is a picture of salvation and sanctification. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, but we show the evidence of our faith through our faithful works. This is how God's providence works in our life and works in Ruth. So Ruth experienced God's providence but also worked out God's faithfulness by living out her growing, her young faith in him. So Ruth experienced God's providence. She also experienced God's provision as we look down through verses 8 through 13. And now we're given this first glimpse into this Boaz character. And the first thing that jumps out as we read through this is his unwarranted kindness toward Ruth beginning in verse 8. Number one, he encourages Ruth to stay in his field. And to keep close to the other women that were also gleaning in it. And number two, he offers Ruth protection from the young men who may have treated her disrespectfully 
when Boaz wasn't looking. And then three, he actually gives her water to drink, which would have been kind of a commodity if she was working those fields in the heat. And what's so amazing about this is Ruth's mind is blown by Boaz's level of generosity in verse 10. And Ruth knows who she is, right? Ruth knows that she is a vulnerable widow. She knows she's totally dependent on the favor and the grace of another. She knows she's a foreigner whose expectations for how she'd be treated in a strange land are probably pretty low. But the favor, the grace that Boaz has upon her shatters her expectations. And this brings to mind to us God's kindness and that there are no foreigners in his household. Amen? I mean, this is made plain when we go to the New Testament book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 28, when the Apostle Paul states, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Ruth points to the day we read about in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2.19, when Paul says again, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So it was this grace and kindness of God through the death of Christ that gives us as strangers and aliens, access to God's greatest provision. This is what Ruth points us back to. This is what Ruth received from Boaz as a model for what we'd someday receive in Christ. And look at how Boaz responds to Ruth in verse 11. Let me read that. It says, Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and come to a people that you did not know before. And then he prays over Ruth here. In verse 12, he said, The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Well, what does this tell us about God? In the model that we get from Boaz. Well, number one, that he honors humility, right? I mean, Ruth was in a humble state. And number two, that sacrifice is always our greatest testimony. Everything she had done to sacrifice and walk alongside her grieving mother-in-law became known to Boaz. Sacrifice is always our greatest testimony because It is the testimony of Christ, isn't it? And so Ruth, still so young in her faith, experiences God's providence, experiences God's provision through Boaz, and finally experiences God's pleasure as we look down at verses 14 through 16, and we see the way that Boaz personally invites Ruth in to eat with him and his men until she's satisfied. And we need to grasp how significant it was for Boaz to invite Ruth to eat with him and his workmen. We need to grasp how significant it was for somebody in that particular area of influence to treat her with that level of kindness and care and dignity and respect. Hey, Boaz knows who Ruth is, right? She's not of the same race. She's not of the same nationality. She's not the same socioeconomic class that Boaz is in. And yet Boaz 
invites her in to eat until she was satisfied, and then sets her up with even more opportunities to glean even more grain, to even more fully provide for her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, the reason why um, people like Ruth back in that day who didn't own a field were allowed to glean grain from a field was because of an Old Testament law in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, 19 that said this. This was something that was instituted years and years before. And this is what the passage says. It says, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. So there was a stipulation in the law that says those who were poor were able to go to the fields and glean any of the grain that would fall as the reapers were harvesting. And they were to leave that for the poor so that they could gather it and they would have food to eat. So basically what Boaz is saying to Ruth is like, hey, this is available to you. And he's telling his men, make sure you leave that available to them. So he was conscientious. He understood the needs of Ruth and Naomi, and he cared about what those needs are. So God not only provided for Ruth, but he showed his pleasure for her through the abundant kindness of Boaz. By the way, who went far beyond what even the Old Testament law even required. I mean, by inviting her in, by doing a little lunch with her, with him and the boys, that was way beyond what he was required to do. Now remember, Ruth... Remember the place that Ruth is in right now. Ruth has nothing to offer. This was a one-way act of kindness and grace from a man who owed her absolutely nothing. And yet the Spirit of God moved in Boaz to care for her. By the way, this was an act of faith, was it not, for Boaz? He was meeting the needs of someone who was young in her faith, who was meeting the needs of someone who was weak in their faith through Naomi. It's phenomenal, isn't it? What a picture for us. As we see in our society the way prejudice and the abuse of women is literally bursting the seams of our society right now. I mean, how many more sexual harassment claims were like made this week alone? I mean, they're just like popping out, right? I mean, dude, we can, we can chat about this, all right? Because we must chat about this. Because listen, follow me, I need all your eyes right now. Because the church must not be a house of apathy or avoidance, okay? We need to be understanding. We need to be compassionate, merciful, and long-suffering for those who suffer from prejudice or abuse of any shape or size. And we need to speak ferociously against it without a hint of politicizing or justification. The church needs to lead the charge against such things, not pretending they don't exist, but by showing honor to those of the opposite sex and of different races or of different color with dignity and respect because God has given them that as image bearers of Jesus Christ. By the way, if you think what I'm talking about doesn't exist in our town. Read the Humans of Ashland piece that Tim Black did for our African-American brother, Chris Lewis, who's part of our congregation, who speaks very graciously, but very honestly about the kind of looks and comments and insensitivities that he endures 
as a black man in a 98% Caucasian town. So let's face this. Let's face this in faith. And let's not be colorblind as a way to cope. God created color. So let's see it and celebrate it. But let's seek as fellow image bearers to understand it the way that we see Boaz understanding it as somebody who is seeking the Lord in all of these things. Amen? So what we're seeing in the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz are three different individuals in three different seasons of faith. So here's my question for you. What season of faith are you in this morning? What season of faith do you find yourself in this morning? Maybe you are like Ruth. Maybe you have a young faith. Maybe it's just been a few years or a few months, or maybe you were part of a church for years and years, and you literally came to a place where you're like, I don't know that I've had a faith. So I've heard all the rhetoric, but when I break it down, I realize that after 40 years in a church, maybe I just came to Christ because I finally believe the gospel. I finally understand the gospel. I finally understand repentance. So young faith can look really different, right, for everybody involved. What was, what was Ruth's response What did Ruth do with her young faith? Well, we see what she did. Ruth worked. Ruth just went to work. She showed her faith by going to work in the field God placed her in, by staying true to her promise to Naomi. She just did what she knew how to do. What field has God placed you in? Are you seeking opportunities to learn, like Ruth, what it means to live out your faith? in the fields that God has presented to you. My encouragement to you, if you find yourself in this particular season of faith, is to get yourself in the mix. Get yourself in the mix of the body. Discover what it means to live out your faith. Surround yourself with those who are both mature in the faith and weak in the faith, because this is why. The mature are going to model something for you. They're going to model wisdom and steadfastness and sanctification, and you need that. But those who are weak in their faith, because that's their season, they will give you compassion. They will give you understanding. It's like when we look at John chapter 21 and we see the way Jesus dealt with Peter, someone who was very young in their faith, someone who had just lost his way in many ways, but was striving and trying and seeking to understand what God was doing and what God had for him. And at one point, Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? And Peter goes, I do. And Jesus just said, well, go get to work. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. I'm going to work all this out for you. I know you've made mistakes. I know you're still figuring things out. But don't think for a minute that I am not walking alongside of you through this faith that I'm increasing inside of you. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're at a place where you feel like, man, I have a young faith. I have a growing faith. Maybe you're more like Boaz. Maybe you have a mature faith. Maybe you've been around for a while. You've known Christ for a while. What do we see Boaz doing? What's the response of Boaz as one with a mature faith? Boaz served. Boaz was serving. God blessed him with a field, with employees, with a good name in the community. Well, what the heck did he do with all of that? Did he just hoard it? No. He used it to serve. 
He used it to serve Ruth and Naomi, two women in different seasons of their faith that were going to benefit from the generosity of someone who is now more mature in their faith. Is this you? Are you somebody who's been walking with God for years and years? Well, here's some encouragement for you. And it's this, don't hoard that. Don't hoard your wisdom and your blessings. Reach out with the means that God has blessed you with, with the knowledge and the maturity God has blessed you with. Sacrifice, serve others, discover what it means to use your wisdom and knowledge to help the body. Surround yourself with those who are young in the faith. Surround yourself with those who are weak in the faith. Because the young, the people who are young in their faith, they're going to help guard you against apathy and arrogance and feeling like, man, you have nothing left to learn, man. I've arrived. I've heard all this. I'm there. There's no place for me to go. Wrong-o. And they're going to remind you of that. You know what the weak will do for you? People that are in a weak season of faith, they will soften your heart like Boaz's heart was softened for Ruth. So maybe that's you. You're mature in your faith and you need to step out and you need to start exercising those muscles that God has built in you. And finally, maybe you are like Naomi. Maybe you are in a season where you are experiencing a weak faith. What was Naomi doing in all this? She was pretty silent except for the beginning when she said, go, my daughter. So what was Naomi doing? Well, well, Naomi was just waiting. Naomi was waiting. And maybe for some of you who are in that particular season, where you feel like, man, my faith is so weak, Ronnie. Well, that's okay. You can wait like Naomi. Sometimes we find ourselves in a season of suffering, in a season of grief. Sometimes all we can do is wait. By the way, waiting doesn't mean wasting away either. We can encourage others as we wait in our weakness. Did Naomi not encourage Ruth? She did. She encouraged Ruth to go. Some of you who are in this season might think, gosh, I've always been the one to serve others. I'm the one that's stepping up with a more mature faith to serve others. Well, maybe God has you in this season to receive the benefit of another's faith. And maybe he's brought you to this place providentially so that you might learn how to do that. So my encouragement to you would be guard against isolation. Discover what it means to be patient and quiet before the Lord. And those who are mature will surround you and provide wisdom and assurance. And those who are young in their faith will encourage you to remember the season your faith will someday return to. Remember in Mark 9, when the father of the son who had an unclean spirit came to Jesus and said, will you heal my son? And Jesus like, I can do all things for those who believe. And what does this brother say? He says, ah, he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but I don't believe. My faith is weak. What did God do? What did Jesus do? Did he say, yeah, well, sorry, that's not good enough for me. I'm out, lunchtime. No, he helps him. He helps him in the weakness of his faith. And that's what God is providing for you in the weakness of your faith. He's providing you with a help that you may have not known or realized you needed otherwise. So when we look at the lives of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, we see three people in three different walks, three different speeds, three different seasons of faith, all receiving, all receiving the same providence, 
the same provision and the same pleasure of God through the faithfulness of others. I remember when I was about eight years old, we took a horrible family vacation. And I say horrible because they all the Chevy Chase movies were basically written after our vacations. They were influenced by that. But I remember we had a big RV and we had a boat. Always a bad idea, always a bad combination. And we drove from California to Utah to this lake, Lake Powell, believe it or not. And uh, so at some point, uh, dad being dad, um, decides to, to take the shortcut. This is years before GPS. And this shortcut took us, the RV and the boat, up a side of a mountain that literally just wound and wound, of which there was no like guardrails all the way up the mountain. So you want to picture the scene here. Uh, Mom is sitting you know, in the passenger seat with her eyes closed, like chanting like death prayers, right? I mean, it was that, it was crazy. I mean, I'm not lying to you right now. It was crazy. Now, I'm, I'm sitting in the back. You know, I'm young, right? I'm concerned. I have my concerns, even at eight years old. But I keep playing my little portable video game. That was back when they had those. Um, hoping it, it wasn't my dad's plan to avoid ever having to take another vacation again. That's why he was taking us up this road and taking us to our death, right? Now, if you were to look at, at, at the old man, right, um, Pops could not have been more relaxed if he'd been laying on a hammock between two trees, right? This guy was the picture of peace and tranquility. He kept reassuring my mom that he was, and I quote, the best driver in the world. So there was nothing to worry about. Somehow that didn't help my mom. Okay, here's my point. Three different faiths, three different amounts of faith. But here I am. We all ended up safe on the top of the mountain, right? The RV carried us up. The driver got us there safe and secure. D.A. Carson, uh, professor at Trinity Divinity School, says, it is not the intensity or clarity of our faith that saves us, but the object of our faith. That's why you can find God's favor and grace in your life at any season of faith that you find yourself in. That's why this is so encouraging for us. This is why this is so encouraging for wherever you may find yourself. And so you want to ask yourself, where are you on this grid? Tighten it up. Take a close look. Where do you find yourself on this grid? And let me say this. Let me say how much that I've experienced at Substance Church as your pastor in the four and a half years or however long it's been since I've been here, how much encouragement I've received from so many of you in every season of faith I've found myself in. Do you think that I've not been in seasons of faith the last four years? Talk to Jeff Powell if you need to get like a, a bird's eye on that. But I've received encouragement from all of you. When I've been in Naomi, some of you have been my Ruth. When I've been a Ruth, some of you have been my Boaz. Whose Ruth are you today in our congregation? Whose Boaz are you? Who's Naomi? Are you? Do you faithfully extend the favor and the grace you've been given in the season of faith you're in to others who are all in different seasons at different speeds? And let me say this. Some of you have been believers for a long time. You've accumulated quite a bit of biblical knowledge. But in the process, man, you've just become like a museum piece 
You have so many opportunities to come alongside someone young or weak in their faith, and instead you keep yourself locked in a glass case, like you're untouchable, like you're unwilling, or maybe unknowing, that you can be used. Can I encourage you to be a Boaz, to be a Boaz to somebody in our family of faith, because all of us have received the favor of Boaz through Christ, not because of our great faith, but because we have a great God who is faithful even when we are not, which is often. 2 Timothy 2, 11-13 says this, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Our hope is never rooted in our faith, but in the unchanging character of God reflected in the perfect faithfulness of his son Jesus, the object of our faith now and forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, what an incredible story for us to be reminded of your faithfulness and to be reminded of the fact that we are human beings who walk through many seasons of faith at different speeds, at different moments, being subjected to different measures of suffering and different levels of grief that comes on the heels of those things. But we see here that you are always walking by our side through the faith of others and the faithfulness of Christ. We thank you for the Ruths and the Boazes and the Naomis that we're all surrounded with of who we are right now. And we thank you, Lord, that the gospel means that you have accepted us not because of our faith, but because Christ was faithful even as he endured the cross. And it's his faithfulness now that you approach us and that we can approach you with. Lord, help us to remember this truth. And Lord, help us to come out of ourselves. Help us to use the faith and the walk of faith that we find ourselves in for the benefit of others and for the benefit of the community that you've placed us in. Lord, don't let us waste the weak or the young or the mature faith that we might have or be experiencing right now. Let us be so compelled by Christ's care for us, modeled by Boaz in this story, that, Lord, we come out of ourselves and we extend your faithfulness to others. Lord, give us such big hearts to do that, especially as we anticipate the seasons that are upon us. We anticipate uh, the hurting and the suffering, uh, the family members that we may be distant from right now that we're going to be reunited with. Lord, I pray that you would use us, calm our spirits, Lord, sharpen our hearts, Lord, for the work that you have in this season. We thank you that we are always reminded that it's your faith that sustains us. So continue to do that, Lord, and build our faith in the process, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.